0: We're going to be in Exodus 14. I'm going to read the whole chapter. So if you will, please show reverence to God's word and stand with me as I read it. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pe-Hairoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi Hieroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it, would be, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. For the Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is God's word. Come on up, Chad.
1: Go get him, Chad. Did you steal my communion that was right here?
0: Oh, I, I threw that on the floor. Let me go get you another one.
1: Yes, please. <laughs> you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I know I know most of you really well, or kind of well. At least we've met. If we haven't, my name's Chad. I'm the lowly pastoral intern here. Kidding. Um, I have the honor this morning, obviously, of bringing you God's Word. I love, love, love getting to do this. I'm humbled that our pastors give me this opportunity to strengthen you guys and speak God's Word to you guys in this way. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word this morning. Thank You for Exodus chapter 14. This chapter points us to the true exodus you've given us in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this morning that you would cause us to have fresh eyes and uncalloused, unforgetful hearts. We've read this story. Those of us who have grown up in church have read this story a thousand times. And we're prone to be bored by it. I pray, Lord, that You wouldn't let us be bored by it this morning. That You would enable us, by Your Word preached in Your Spirit, to see You for who You truly are, the God who saves, who gives grace, who has given us a mediator. I pray now, Lord, that You would use me to that end to strengthen Your saints and to bring Your lost sheep to Yourself. I am expectant, Lord, that You will work this morning in all of our hearts, including mine. Draw near now, Lord. pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, Savior, and Treasure, and King. Amen. I want you all to think about <clears throat> one of your favorite movie scenes. from one of, Probably from one of your favorite movies. You got it? Can you think of it? Now, we're going to forgive Smitty, Pastor Daniel, because one of his favorite movie scenes is when... Elsa sings Let It Go in Frozen. I'm still trying to disciple him on what a good movie is. But um, I think of two of my favorite movies and movie scenes, Braveheart and Miracle. In Braveheart, at the end, um, the Scottish army is... I've used this in a sermon before. Uh, At the end, William Wallace is rousing the, the Scottish troops to fight the English army. And the Scottish army is going to run away. There's too many English. They're petrified. They're terrified. And he gives this amazing speech. You know, They can take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. I think of the movie Miracle. I hope you guys have seen this movie. It's amazing. If you want to come to my house July 4th, we started a tradition where we watch Miracle every July 4th. It's about the 1980 United States Olympic hockey team. Um, This is before the United States allowed professionals to be in the Olympics, so it was a bunch of amateurs, a bunch of college students, or just graduated college students. And they had the task of trying to beat the Soviet Union hockey team, who for the last 16 years had been undefeated, had won the last four Olympic gold medals. And in the semifinal game against the Soviet Union, USA goes out and wins. And you know that scene if you've seen it where Herb Brooks goes into the tunnel and he's at a loss of words and he just throws his hands up and he's like, yes! And he's crying and I'm crying and hopefully you're all crying because it's such a powerful scene. As I was thinking this week about my favorite scene from my favorite movies, it really dawned on me that, I don't know about you guys, but when I think about my two favorite scenes, it really has to do with a salvation or a deliverance in the midst of a desperate circumstance. I wonder when you think of a favorite movie or favorite story, that's one of your favorite scenes. And I think we, that rouses us so much because the greatest storyteller created that. This true story of the Exodus. And that's what we're going to see. An amazing scene of God's salvation and deliverance in the midst of a desperate circumstance. So before we dive into Exodus 14, I want to give you guys a little context. I know most of you are... Uh, church members here, covenant partners, you've been coming every week, but there are a lot of visitors here this morning and I want to give them context all the way from the beginning, from chapter 1. I'll be quick though, okay? Just a reminder. Remember, my hope is that we would see with fresh eyes this morning. So, we see at the beginning of Exodus, Israel has increased greatly. Um, They're in Egypt though, they're slaves. Pharaoh is a harsh taskmaster making them make bricks and all this stuff. Um... He says, Israel's too many. Let's kill the firstborn. Or let's kill the male children. And um, Moses is spared. And and why is he spared? He was a fine child. Right, Beth? He was a fine child. Moses is spared. Um, Skipping a lot of details, Moses grows up, and God appears to him in a burning bush and says, I'm going to use you to bring my people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And Moses balks, and he wrangles his brother Aaron in. And then we see Aaron and Moses go before Pharaoh and have these interactions. Thus says the Lord, let My people go. And and Moses says no. And then we see the ten plagues. Which culminate in the tenth plague, the Passover, in which God takes the firstborn. What an amazing picture of the Gospel that is, is it not? To be saved, they had to sacrifice a sacrificial lamb, paint the blood on the doorposts and the lintel. When the angel of death came through, if he saw the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the doors, he would pass over and not kill the firstborn. All of Israel did this, none of Egypt did this, and they all lost their firstborn. And then last week, uh, Aaron preached on chapter 13, where God tells the people to consecrate their firstborn, kind of like our baby dedications we do now. God had spared the firstborn, so he said, they belong to me. I want you to dedicate them, consecrate them to me. And then He institutes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This feast where Israel was supposed to remember what God had done for them in the Exodus. And then finally, at the end of chapter 13, God shows up in a theophany. It's a manifestation of His presence as He did in the burning bush, in a pillar of cloud, and a pillar of fire, and leads Israel out of Egypt. So that's where we are. Now chapter 14. To be honest with you guys, I know it's probably unprofessional, but I'm still young enough and learning that I really struggled. This is an amazing, amazing text, and I haven't preached a lot of Old Testament narrative, so I really wrestled this week. I had some great talks with uh, Rich and Smitty and Aaron and Beck, and thank you guys for your direction and prayer. So so what I want to do is I just want to walk through this story. Again, I want to help you guys see it, hopefully with fresh eyes, and you know me, I want you guys to feel it. I want you to... See what it's like to have been there to the best of my ability. And then after that, I'll offer some interpretations and small applications throughout. But then in the second half of the message this morning, I just want to talk about gospel applications and implications. So if you want to look along with me, I'm not going to reread the whole chapter, but I'm just going to summarize each point. I, I titled verses 1 through 4, God Sovereignly Calls His Shot. Many of you may have heard the story of. Babe Ruth in the 1932 World Series. Yankees are playing Chicago in Chicago. It's tied 4-4. Four to four. Apparently, Babe Ruth is getting heckled the whole game. His first two pitches are strikes. Before the third pitch, Babe Ruth steps up and he points to the flag at center field. Then he crowds the plate. The pitcher throws a curveball and he crushes it out right at the flagpole that he called his shot. It's amazing. Now, just because God is sovereign shouldn't make us think it's less cool that He called His shot. It's, God is 100%. Every shot He's ever called or will ever call will come true. So we see God tell Moses to tell Israel how and where they are to camp. I'm not going to repronounce the, the city names. They're just to camp in such a way. Why? Because Pharaoh is going to pursue Pharaoh's going to see that they're confused in the, in the movie, The Ten Commandments, which I watched this weekend as part of my sermon study prep. It's a measly, measly four hours. I highly recommend it, though, the 1956 one. Pharaoh says, apparently the God of Israel isn't a very good commander or general, but God really is the best commander and general. He's, he's making Israel look confused on purpose, so Pharaoh will follow. Look at God's sovereignty in the text with me. God tells Moses, you shall. Verse 3, Pharaoh will say. Verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue. I will get glory. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. One commentator said, and I would agree, God is not predicting the future. He's making the future happen. He's causing it to happen. He's a great sovereign general. And then there's that little, those four little words at the end of verse 4, and they did so. Now, it's not necessarily a cross-reference in my Bible or your Bibles, but I thought instantly to the creation account. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see when God creates land and animals, there are many times where it says, and it was so. And it reminds me, and hopefully reminds you, that God's speaking is His doing. When He speaks something, He's going to do it. And everything He said here, He sovereignly calls His shot. And they did so. It's going to happen. In the next chunk of verses, verses 5-9, through we see the plan is set in motion. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. His mind is changed. And then he says what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. Sin, you guys, sin and pride is so blinding. Does Pharaoh not remember the ten plagues that he just went through? Do the people not remember the loss of their firstborn sons? Maybe weeks before? Maybe months before? It's crazy. So then, Pharaoh pursues. He and his whole army He makes ready his chariot, takes 600 chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt. He says chariots, the author Moses says chariots four times in these verses. It is meant to strike fear in an ancient Near Eastern reader. Chariots were the weapons of mass destruction of their day. People would be terrified to see thousands, at least hundreds, maybe thousands of Egyptian chariots coming after them. It would have struck fear into the Israelites. But it's still ironic. Because think about it. Pharaoh is pursuing Israel with men and horses and chariots. Trying to fight against the God of Israel. The God of the plagues. Throughout the Bible and in these chapters, we're going to see God's hand and His power compared with the hand and power of the Pharaoh. And it is no match. So Pharaoh catches up in the ESV translation. It actually says overtakes. I prefer the, the translation catches up. He doesn't get close enough, it seems, to kill any Israelites or re, to recapture. He just catches up. Maybe there's a hill in between Egypt and Israel and the Egyptians crest the hill. They, they catch up and e, uh, Israel sees Egypt. And they're terrified, which moves us to verses 10 through 14. I would title this Israel Reacts to Seeing Egypt and Says Something Crazy. And then Moses reacts to what Israel said. Have you guys heard the saying, Out of the frying pan and into the fire? I wonder if that came from here. They'd just seen these 10 plagues, amazing acts of God's power. They think they're free. They're out of Egypt. And then Egypt pursues. Think about the fear. Think about the plot twist. Again, in movies and stories we've seen, we think they're safe, and then, oh no, the sub-hero gets nailed by a bus or something. They must have been petrified. But before we're too hard on them and their paper-thin faith, let me remind you graciously and lovingly that we are them. We are so prone, I'm not the first to say this. I do love saying this, but I just want to say I'm not the first to ever say this. But we are so prone to read ourselves into the Bible as the hero of the story. If I'm in this story, I'm Moses. If I'm in the Bible, I'm David. I'm Joshua. I'm Josiah. I'm Asa. The reality is, and this is going off notes here and sugarcoating. Whenever we see a dumb, dopey, sinful, blind, complaining, loser in the Bible, we're supposed to read ourselves as that person. So let's be hard on Israel, but let's remember that we are them. They are so afraid of their immediate circumstances. Kind of like Aaron said a few weeks ago with um, Moses killing the Egyptian, he looked left and he looked right. In which way didn't he look? Up. And Israel looks left, looks right, and doesn't look up. And I wonder if that's any of you here this morning. It's been me. An immediate circumstance makes us look left and right and not up. We're struggling with depression or a sin or financial worries. And we forget that the God of Israel, the God of the plagues, is our God. And we need only look up. So what does Israel say? This is crazy. So crazy I have to reread it again, word for word. Listen to this. Israel says to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." How many parents or aspiring parents are in here? Can I get a hand raise? <clears throat> a lot of you. If you're not a parent, that's okay. This illustration's still going to make sense. But let me happily and presumptuously tell you one of your biggest pet peeves for parents and aspiring parents. Maybe not just a pet peeve, but like a direct button to your 10 out of 10 anger. Hulk smash anger. When you do something... To bless your kids, you spend your time, your talent, your treasure, blessing them, caring for them, giving them a fun experience. And they accuse you of not being good or gracious or loving. Imagine, my my day with my kids, especially my three-year-old Zeke, we, we go to Lucille's for breakfast and I give them beignets. And then we go to a park. And then at lunchtime we go to another great restaurant and then during nap time, no naps are taken we go to another park we order pizza for dinner we watch a movie at night he gets an hour past his bedtime and then bedtime comes and what happens daddy can I have six stories no you can't have six stories It's been a great day I've blessed your socks off daddy that's so unfair you're so mean you're so rude Audrey and I were laughing so hard because this happened to us last night we let the kids stay up like almost an hour past his bedtime I told him the story of Joseph, which was like a long story, and then he what did he want? He wanted another story, or he wanted to hang out a little bit, and I was like, dude, I have just graciously blessed you, and you are so unthankful, and I want you to feel that. that is what is, that's the heart posture of Israel right now. This was not a cry for help. This was a temper tantrum. See it, feel it. Their fear led them to a false dichotomy death or slavery again they forgot to look up they forgot to be thankful and acknowledge who god was and what he had done it really reminds me of this really well-known c.s lewis quote i say it a lot it's really good you guys should memorize it i should too because here it is in my notes but anyways i have most of it memorized c.s lewis says this we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies. Like an ignorant Israel who wants to go back to making bricks. Mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Israel wanted to go back to making mud pies in a slum? Or they wish they would have stayed there? For those of us that are, <clears throat> that are in Christ this morning, that was each of us until God opened our eyes. We were making mud pies in a slum. That hits hard for me. Drink and sex and ambition. That was my life. And I want to again, graciously and lovingly say to anyone here who's not a follower of Jesus Christ, gracious and lovingly, you are making mud pies in a slum. You have no idea the infinite joy that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. And it's not going to be easy. It's not necessarily going to be only a holiday at the sea. It's not butterflies and rainbows, as I say sometimes. But you will experience a joy you have never experienced. A fullness of your heart and soul you have never experienced through drinking and sex and ambition. So then Moses responds... Verses 13 and 14, I hope by the context I've convinced you that Moses was pissed, and God probably was too. Some commentators said, what a gracious and loving response this was from Moses, and I disagree. I think he's pissed. And so I'm going to read the verses again like I think Moses would have said them, and I'm going to change the end a little bit because it's going to be closer to the original Hebrew. So read along with me if you want in verse 13, Moses says, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you shut up. Two Hebrew words there. Best translation is shut up. Fear not, stand firm, shut up. I wish I was bold enough to say, maybe some of you need to hear that today, but hopefully the Lord will just speak that through, through me if you need to hear that today. I'm not bold enough to say that. So, God, uh, verses 15-18, through 18, the next chunk, God responds to Moses and tells him more details of their imminent salvation. Look at verse 15. That was kind of weird, wasn't it? Moses, The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to Me? Now it may be Moses, the author, left out the fact that he cried out to God or it may be pointing us to a deeper theological truth. God holds His mediator accountable for the sins of His people. Israel cries out in 11 and 12, and God holds Moses accountable. So then God tells Moses to stretch out His hand or His hands and divide the sea. Now, if I was Moses, I would have been like, what? Really? Isn't there like another way? Another plague? Or just like crush him and we can go another way. I'm glad Moses didn't try to tell God how to do his job. He's just like, wow, this is amazing. You're going to part the sea. And then God again says, parallel to verse 4, in verse 17, he says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. We're going to come back to this again in the second half of this sermon. What a theme of the Bible this is. God is going to get glory. He's sovereignly called His shot at the beginning and He's going to make it happen. Verses 19 and 20, the angel of God divides the Egyptians from the Israelites. He continues this differentiation showing both Israel and Egypt who His people are and aren't. Uh, It really hit me when Rich was preaching the Passover that God says not even a dog would bark against Israel on that night. He is differentiating who His people are. So He shows up in a cloud. Maybe a cloud and the a, a pillar of fire. It just says cloud, but based off of um, it lit up the night at the end of verse 20. And then if you look really quick in verse 24, it says in the morning watch in the pillar of fire and cloud look down on the Egyptian forces. So it could be that the pillar of cloud was on the side of the Egyptians casting them into deep darkness. And the pillar of fire was on the side of Israel, giving them light. And it could be that this was reminiscent to the Egyptians of the ninth plague, which was the plague of darkness. Maybe God was warning Egypt, hey, remember the last time you were plunged into thick darkness? Death was near behind. And and maybe that's a, a gracious warning of God again to Egypt. Death is coming. Either way, we see that God... Splits them and prevents Egypt from attacking. So then finally we come to the to the crossing of the Red Sea, verses twenty-one through twenty nine. Moses stretches out his hand, and the Lord drives the sea back by a strong east wind. God uses means He drives it back all night, and the sea becomes dry land. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and their left. This is amazing. This is an amazing, true miracle. And those who would strip the Bible of its miraculous would say, Well, it was just a strong east wind. It's not a a miracle. Baloney. This is an amazing miracle that I hope we would see with fresh eyes this morning and be astounded. It really made me think of when I've heard good sermons, and I'm going to hate on us preachers here for a second graciously, when you hear a sermon about Jesus calming the storm, and we so quickly spiritualize it and apply it, well, if Jesus calmed the storms, He can calm the storms in our life, which is right and true. But but we quickly go over the disciples' reaction. What manner of man is this? That even the wind and the sea obey Him. What an amazing miracle. The water was a wall on their right and their left. A wall. One commentator said it probably wasn't a wall. It was probably just like shallow. And I was like, dude, it says wall. This is amazing. Could you see fish and whales in? I don't know. This is an amazing, amazing miracle. But Israel is not safe yet. We think, oh, they're going to make it. They're going to make it. But, but Egypt is right behind them. They pursue. But then God. What But God, what does He do? He throws the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. God attacks their chariots. The symbol of their power. Now they're scared. If He's attacking the symbol of our power, we're afraid. Which is weird because they've just seen the ten plagues. Crazy. The Egyptians say, let's flee. Because the Lord is fighting for them. Duh, right? Duh. You were there. Again, I am just keep getting back to this. You were there for the ten plagues. Many of you have lost a firstborn son or a friend who was a firstborn son. Duh, Egypt. It would be a comedic confession if it weren't about to turn into such a terrible tragedy. Because Israel gets through, God tells him to put his hands up again, the sea comes back together, God throws the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, and every single Egyptian dies. Verse 28, not one of them remained. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Pharaoh was fighting with God thinking he was God's equal. But Pharaoh found out his arms were too short to box with God. Pharaoh tried to destroy God's son, his beloved son, Israel. And he found out what a big mistake that was. The final two verses, verses 30 and 31, I don't think are just a conclusion to chapter 14. They're a conclusion of 430 years of slavery. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand or the power of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. We see again the contrast of Egypt's power and God's power. It is no match. So, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. What a story. What a picture, a scene of God's deliverance in the midst of a desperate circumstance. So how does this apply to us? Gospel implications and applications. Again, I am thankful for the pastors of this church. Because I want to tell you guys like 46 more points that I think we can learn that apply to us theologically and spiritually. And they love you guys too much to let me say that much or preach that long, reminding me to keep the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So I, I say that just to say, I'm not claiming to be exhaustive. I think there's a big one here uh, that I'm going to skip over about our sanctification. They got out of Egypt, but did Egypt get out of them? I'm not even going to touch that. You can study that on your own. It's called sanctification. Let me just share two with you. The first one being quicker and shorter, even though it's a huge theme of the Bible. It's related to the second one. It goes totally hand in hand. It's this. God's sovereign providence to bring glory to His own name. If you've been around this church for any time, for one sermon, you know that. And if you've been around for longer, it's been drilled into your head and your heart. And if you've ever read even one John Piper book or listened to one John Piper sermon, you know. But I feel like a lot of Christians don't always learn that. I didn't learn that growing up, and I'm not hating on my parents or my church. But I remember when Audrey and I first learned this truth, that God does everything for His own glory. It was paradigm shifting and shattering. It, it is a bedrock of our trust in the Lord and our love for Him. Because it frees us from thinking that our faith or our doubts or our performance affect our salvation. We either merit it or we can lose it. God will be glorified. And He'll be glorified by saving sinners. And therefore, when we struggle with doubts or fear or when we think we're doing really good, none of that changes the fact that God will glorify Himself by saving His people. I forgot to, to remind you guys, that was in verses 4 and 17 that we saw, 17 and 18, that we saw God do that. And so, number two, God, God brings glory to His own name. How? By saving sinners. And so the second point here is the crossing of the sea is a paradigm, meaning a view, a template for the way God saves sinners. There's a what, a how, and a why. First, what? What are we saved from? bondage. In the same way Israel was saved from bondage in Egypt, serving an evil master, we as Christians are saved from bondage to sin, serving sin and Satan. Praise God for our salvation from slavery to our sin. Romans 6, 6 and 7 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Praise be to God. Second is how we are saved. By a crossing over by grace. We saw in verse 14, Moses say, see the salvation of the Lord, that He will work for you. Salvation is not about what we do but about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. In the same way God graciously took the Israelites from one side to the other, from death to life, He does the same thing for the Christian. The Israelites were caught between the forces of evil and the sea of God's wrath, and so were we. But God made a way. He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son few New Testament examples of this. They are great. I'm going to read three of them. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Romans 4, 4 and 5 say, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then John 5.24, I have so grown to love this verse because it's the namesake of our church. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has crossed over from death to life. You all know this, but grace is what sets Christianity apart. You know that. Remember that. Love it. We cannot add to our salvation at all. It is the free gift of God And every other world religion. Adds works to our estranged brothers and sisters, Roman Catholics. It is grace plus works. You add to your salvation a little bit. In Islam, it's all works. You meet Allah on the day of your death, do your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Every other world religion has some sort of you doing something to earn your salvation. And our gracious God has said, nope, you do nothing. You stand there or you lay there dead in your sins and shut up and watch me work salvation for you. If I ask you, if you're a Christian, and you say I'm trying, You haven't yet understood the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You do not try. When you meet God on the day of your death or on the great day of judgment, and He says, Why can and should you be here? The only response can be, I can't and I shouldn't be here. But I have banked everything on Jesus Christ. I offer filthy rags, as we say. I have nothing, but I'm banking on Jesus Christ. You've told me to bank on Him and I'm banking on Your Word. Praise God. And if that's our answer, and for those of us in here who are in Christ, it will be, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the infinite joy of your Master. Number three, why we can be saved. A mediator. This could have been like a ten-part sermon series. I leave a lot out here. But throughout the Bible, Jesus is known as the true and better Moses, the true and better Adam, the true Israel. In the same way Moses represented God to the people and the people to God, Jesus perfectly fulfilled that role. Moses was so identified with the Israelites that their guilt was on Him. Remember him getting rebuked in verse 15? And Jesus Christ was not just rebuked for one sin in one verse. He was rebuked for all of our sin. He took all of God's wrath on our behalf. Our guilt became His. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. One Bible teacher says it like this, as Moses stretched out his hands to make a way for his people, Jesus stretched out his hands on the cross to make a way for his people. Moses was plunged into the sea so that all who followed him would be saved. A side note that I would add is he was plunged into the sea of God's wrath and protected from God's wrath. Jesus plunged into death and experienced the wrath of God for us so that all who follow him would be saved. As the waters destroyed Pharaoh and his army, Jesus destroyed Satan and his. The sea the people feared became the means of their deliverance. And the death that we fear becomes the means of our deliverance into the promised land of God's presence. So one more time, if you're, if you're visiting this morning and you aren't a Christian, I offer to you Jesus Christ. I pray that you would experience the exodus that we Christians have. God is holy. We are sinners. But He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, the death we deserve. He rose again. He ascended to the Father. And all we have to do is believe in Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, and we will be saved. And when that truly happens to you, not just because I've made you emotional and you want to do it. When God saves a person, you know what you're going to notice over the next few months? You're going to notice your heart has changed. You are different. You want God more than anything else. You see the mud pie that you've been playing with. For me, it was for 26 years, and I was like, what am I doing? I want Jesus. And if He saved you in this moment, you'll see that in yourself. You'll see a desire to be around God's people you'll see a desire for His Word, a hunger for it. And I invite you to put your faith in Jesus today. For you Christians in here, we're always supposed to apply the Bible, and especially in sermons. There's always got to be an application. James says you must be doers of the Word and not only hearers. But in this case, it's not so much that we apply the Exodus to our lives, but that the Exodus has been applied to us. In the person and work of God's mediator, Jesus Christ, we have been saved from our sin by grace. And that comes with the promise that someday we will enter the promised land of God's presence. I cannot wait for that, and neither can you. We will be finally free of sin, even indwelling sin. The Egypt in our hearts, finally gone forever. May we be in awe and power of the power of the grace of our God, and may we praise Him for our great salvation. I think this poem sums it up well. Slaves in the land cried out for sovereign grace, and a man in the middle was motioned into place. God's plan was set in motion. His glory would be shown by a man in the middle making his ways known. The hardened heart of Pharaoh would soon be Egypt's demise because a man in the middle was quickly coming to rise. The people camped in the wilderness between a city and a sea, and the man in the middle had apparently nowhere to flee. The people grumbled and complained at their impending doom, but the man in the middle, for fear, he had no room. Fear not, stand firm, be quiet, and see the salvation of the Lord, screamed the man in the middle who trembled as he roared. The great I Am then acted, and wrought salvation through the sea, and through the man in the middle was glorified in victory. So now this story happens in the hearts of all mankind through a man in the middle to people who once were blind. He saved his children from bondage. By hanging on a tree, all who come to the man in the middle will truly be free. So praise God for His sovereign decree In ages long ago, that by a man in the middle, an exodus would be known. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You and praise You for the exodus You have given us. I pray, Lord, that You would be working in the hearts of those who don't believe in You, who don't follow You, who have not yet experienced an exodus. For Your children, Lord, I pray that You would cause us to weekly, daily remember the exodus we have experienced. Lord, that's why we gather every Sunday. To be reminded that You have saved us. That we belong to You. That we want to fight for lives of holiness and righteousness and love for You and love for neighbor and hate our sin, Lord. Remove more and more Egypt from our hearts here and now this morning. You are a great and mighty God. And there is no God like You. You are powerful and mighty to save. We praise You, Lord. And we love You for what You've done for us. Help us live in a way that shows our thankfulness. Use us, Lord, the Crossing Church and us as individuals to be under mediators of the true mediator use us to see an exodus happen in someone's life we need you lord especially in the year 2020 it's just a reminder that we've always needed you this much give us faith help us push into you lord by your spirit praise you for changing our hearts Pray this in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is God, who provided us in Exodus. And I pray this in His name. Amen.